Well, before we dive in, is there anything on your mind uh, from, from last week? You know, we started with the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if Just to give you a little reminder, this is what we talked about last week. We talked about the new creation. We talked about the new Jerusalem coming down. We're going to dive into that today. Talk about this new communion that we will have with God in the eternal kingdom that that he will dwell with us and we will be with him and we will be united with him forever. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more trials. Um, we talked about the new conditions on the earth, um, that, that there is the curse is gone, there is no more sin. And then we started talking about the new citizens, which we'll start there today and then we'll just keep moving forward. But all that being said, is there anything to clarify or anything you had questions about last week that we weren't able to, to talk about before we dive into the, the new? All right. Well, then. This is after the, uh, this is after the millennial kingdom. Yes, that's a good question. So that just just to clarify the timeline. So you know you got present. You know the the way things are right now, and this is we call the church age. So this is the Lord is using the church on earth to, to draw His people to Himself, and then there'll be an end of the church, the rapture. So we will the church will be raptured, and that'll begin the the seven year tribulation, uh, which is a time of uh, the Lord pouring out. Uh, his wrath on the earth for sin, um, uh, for the, the sinfulness of the world. And um, that's basically Revelation 6 all the way through Revela- the, basically in 19. So 6 to 19 talks about the, the tribulation time. And so that's the majority of Revelation. During that time, many people will be saved, uh, but, the, the, but the, that's the whole Antichrist, false prophet, all that. The, and then they will gather... Um, uh, the people of the world against the Lord. There'll be uh, a worldwide uh, persecution um, to the point where, you know, uh, they're able to overcome the saints. I mean, there's a lot of death, you know. Um, But through that whole thing, the Lord will save the tribulation saints. The end of the tribulation, uh, that's the the Armageddon battle. And then then Christ returns, and that begins the thousand-year kingdom. So you think about church age, seven-year tribulation, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, um, and then at the end of that, there's that final battle, um, the Gog-Magog thing. And, and then, and then uh, the Lord um, rains the fire uh, from heaven over all those who, after Satan's release, they gather against the, um, uh, Jerusalem and the people of God in Jerusalem. And then that's the beginning of the eternal kingdom, the great white throne of judgment, and then eternal kingdom. So the, the quick version is church age, seven-year tribulation, thousand-year kingdom, eternal kingdom. Does that make sense? But, but once the... Huh? <laughs> I'll make a chart, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we are in the eternal kingdom. And there's only a chapter and a half in the Bible on this. And there's very little Old Testament stuff that talks about this. And even the Old Testament stuff that does talk about it, it's almost just like a little hint. And it's usually mixed in with the tribulation, I mean the millennial kingdom stuff as well. So there is not a lot of revealed uh, truth about the eternal kingdom um, outside of implied things that we understand of, of the character and nature of God and the way things will be. You know, when you talk about sinlessness, uh, you can look at many things that will be implied by sinlessness, and you can have a kind of a, an idea of what the eternal kingdom will be. But, but man, it's, you know, you just got to think, and I said this already, it, it, it is what he gives us is comprehensible because he doesn't, he, he, the Lord has revealed truth to his saints it was meant for us to understand, uh, for us to be edified and encouraged by, for us to be uh, convicted by, for us. To, I mean, so it's, it's, it's meant for the saints. That's what 1 Corinthians uh, talks about, the things that were um, 
Oh, that's Deuteronomy. The things that were revealed were meant for us. But First uh, Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, I just don't know the exact reference. But it talks about, let's see. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. God's hidden wisdom. Yet we do not speak of wisdom among the mature. The wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age um, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom. Uh, this wisdom of God that we talk about is a mystery uh, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So again, not a mystery like like you don't get it or it's 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 fuzzy. A mystery in the sense of it was it was it's now revealed to us, and we are now uh, given this understanding of God, and He predestined the Word of God for the children of God. Uh, before the ages, and he says, for our glory. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for they, if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If, they, if, if, if the world understood this and feared the Lord and believed it to be true, I mean, you wouldn't have your daughter going, I'll just wait till tribulation. I mean, that, that'd be crazy. And we look at that and think it's crazy, but it's because we trust what he says in his word. Um, and, you know, when you talk about uh, salvation is freely given by the blood of Christ, all you have to do is believe. I mean, you... you your thought as a believer is, why in the world would you not? I mean, you, you have freedom from the, the, the bondage of sin, from the eternal uh, um, judgment that we deserve. I mean, you know, from a believer's viewpoint, it's, it, it, oh my goodness, the, like, the Lord is so good. And it's, it goes back to what he says in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, you know? So anyway... But all that being said, the reason I even came here is because everything revealed in God's word is predestined before the ages for our glory purposefully. And he says, actually in verse 9, there are things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And again, I mean, that, that gets into what we're talking about in Revelation 21 and 22. There, there are, the Lord has prepared eternal Blessing, eternal paradise, eternal sinlessness, eternal love, eternal life for all of his children. And we can grasp a, a little hint of that. But all the things that he's prepared for those who love him, for those who are his children, is, is beyond our comprehension. It's, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. But, but it says, the Lord's revealed them through the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit searches all things, even the depth of God. Um, and then he talks about who knows the mind of uh, Man, except the spirit of man, and so the same thing with the spirit of God. But the Lord's given His spirit; He's given us His wisdom, so that those things taught by the Spirit combine spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Um, and then He goes on to say, you know, uh, uh, who who is spiritual? The man who is spiritual appraises all things, for he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? And when when David says that in the Psalms, the answer is is no one. No one instructs God, but. But the answer here is, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. We've been given the spirit of God. We've been given the word and will and mind of God through his written word. And you combine the spirit of God within us that knows God, that searches all things, with the word of God that he's revealed to us. And he's basically saying, you you have the, if you want to say it this way, key to understand and know everything the Lord has revealed to us in this life. And that's for our wisdom, for our edification, for our... um, uh, uh, sanctification. And so it's just a, this is why it's so important for us to know his word. It's not just to, 
to know things about God so we're good at Bible trivia or we can argue with someone or something like that. It's for us to, it's for us to cling to him and to love him and to grow in holiness and to fear him and to follow him. And, and then we read Revelation 21, 22. It's for us to long for home and to can't wait to be there. And we realize that this is just a moment. This is so tiny compared to eternity. And that helps us to live right during this tiny little moment because the way that we live here and the, the, the faithfulness that we have here in our um, our obedience to him has implications for eternal things and eternal reward. And so, um, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where it's, it's good. It's good for us to study these things. And it's good for us to be reminded of those things, both when we're mourning over the, the sinfulness and the evil in the world. And we remember this, it won't be this way forever. Christ will return. He'll make all things right. And when we're tempted by the evil things in this world and we remember that we must obey him, we must follow him, and, uh, and we want to be faithful to him. So anyway, yeah, I just there's another sermon on top of the sermon, in front of the sermon. So here's the <laughs> So last week we left off, we were just talking about the new citizen. So we talked about uh, the new creation, God has uh, made a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, and then we talked about the new city. Uh, actually, let me just read it. It says, um, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we, we're going to talk about that today because from chapter or from verse 9 on, it starts talking about the new Jerusalem. And it's, it's amazing. Uh, verse 3 is, was our third point last week. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So again, I mean, we understand the Spirit of God being within us now. We understand God's presence and his glory being in the tabernacle or the temple or in Christ who came and was with us for 30 years. But, but this is different. God will dwell with us, tabernacle with us. There will be a unity uh, together with God and man that we have never comprehended, and the only even taste of that would have been Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve before the fall, you know. Uh, but there will be a new communion with God that will be distinct and different. He'll be with us. Uh, the conditions on the earth during that time, the, the fourth point last week, is when he says um, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So all that we understand, even the way we just comprehend life, uh, it, that, that will be completely gone. There will be no more trace of death, no more signs of death. The earth itself will be remade, um, and there will be no, no sinfulness anywhere at all. No, I mean, we won't age. We won't get old. There's no decay. There's no entropy. There's, it's just a whole different existence. And then in verse 5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, I'm making all things new. He said, Write these words. They're faithful and true. He said to me, It is done. So he's the completed work of God. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, and so basically God's just saying, based on who I am, the, the, the one that begins and ends all things, and based on my, the faithfulness and truthfulness of my word, he's like, this will happen. It's just God's stamp of approval. This must happen. It will happen. Um, and then at the very end, we started talking about these new, the new citizens, and these are the people uh, that are on the earth, uh, the, new, the, the eternal kingdom and the new earth. He says, um, I will give to the one who thirsts, from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, the things we've been talking about. I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so that's what we started talking about last week, and we kind of left off right in the middle of that. Um, but we talked about the one who thirsts. 
Uh, we talked about uh, Psalm 42, Revelation 7, John 4, and John 7. This is a, a, a theme throughout Scripture where God himself calls himself the, the spring of life or the water of life, where Jesus said, come to me, he who believes in me from his innermost being will be flow rivers of living water. Um, talking both about the spirit of God now and the freedom and forgiveness we have through sin now, but now we're seeing this transpire in the eternal kingdom. It's, it's basically they've come to Christ, uh, and those who thirst for God, those who long for God, they will uh, be with him forever. Uh, so the one who thirsts will be uh, refreshed or will be satisfied, and the one who overcomes, they will inherit all these things. And again, I just showed you kind of a, the theme of the overcomer verses in the Bible in 1 John 5 and Revelation 2 and 3. It just talks about he who believes in Jesus Christ, anyone born of God overcomes this world. We overcome the world not because of who we are, but what Christ has done in us, and because of Christ makes sure that all those who are born of, of, of God overcome the world. Uh, and it says the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, it just talks about these promises that Christ promises to the church, uh, but for all those who overcome. Uh, they, they'll eat of the tree of life. They'll not be hurt by the second death. They'll uh, be given some hidden man, a white stone, new name written on the stone. All these things are eternal kingdom promises that the Lord will, will give to his saints. Authority over the nation, clothe them white, uh, uh, not be erased from the book of life. Uh, God or Christ will confess his name, the name of those who uh, belong to him before the Father and his angels. Um, he'll be a pillar in the temple of God. Um, write on him in, uh, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Again, this is the stuff we're talking about. And my new name, the new name of Christ. Uh, and then finally, he, uh, he says, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. So all that being said, these are things that we see in the millennial kingdom. These are things that we see continue on to the eternal kingdom. We talk about the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom as two kind of different if you want to call them dispensations or different periods of, of, of the, the kingdom of God. But Christ reigns through all of it. Does that make sense? God is, is uh, fulfilling promises through all of it. So it's not like Christ reigns and he doesn't reign. It's Christ reigns from the beginning of the millennium all the way through eternity. There, there does look like some, some, some change uh, between millennium and eternal kingdom. We'll talk about it a little bit today. But the point being is, these are the things that God promises for those who overcome. These are the things that the Lord's promised to those who thirst and long and hunger for him, those who come to the, 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 the springs of the water of life. These are the things that will just uh, be given to those who belong to God, and those are the only people that will exist uh, in this creation uh, for, um, from the beginning of the eternal kingdom forever. Does that make sense? No more sinners. And with that, oh, and then he says, and he will be my son. That's, uh, and, he's, uh, and, and again, I, we talked about this last week, that uh, if we are born again, we are brethren of Christ. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Romans 8 talks about if we're children of God, then we're also heirs uh, of, of the things of God. And if we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, so we inherit the things that only Christ deserves, that only truly belong to him because we've been adopted into this family because Christ is our brother, then we will inherit the things that belong to the family of God. And it's eternal life and the eternal kingdom that we're talking about. And then 1 Corinthians 3, um, and I, I said this joking last week, but, but uh, you know, if, if we belong to Christ, if we've been born again, if we're children of God, then all things belong to us, everything. Like we inherit all things because 
all things belong to Christ. Everything was made by him, for him, and or through him, by him, and for him. And we will inherit those things together with him. Not that we'll be equal to him, not that any of that, but just we inherit these things together with Christ just because we've been grafted into the kingdom, that we've been adopted into the family. None of this we deserve. But this is what he has in store for those who love him. Uh, and it's just unbelievable. And like I said, they're big statements that if you just try to work out what the details of what that means, we just really don't know outside of a little bit that he's given us a glimpse of, which we'll talk about. But before we go into this new Jerusalem, which is wonderful, there is a warning here that we missed last week because I was rushing at the end, and I, I, we've got to do this because this is important now, okay? So right in the middle of talking about this eternal kingdom and all the, the sinlessness and the, 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 the life that God gives his people and just un, unbelievable promises and blessings, John throws in this, Jesus throws this in, there is another warning. There's going to be another warning before the end, too. There's, there's warnings because we're not there yet. We're still living in an age of sin. We're still living in an age where we must repent and believe. There are many people that read these words and hear these sermons and hear this truth that will not be in the kingdom that we talk about. There's many people that have read Revelation that will never, ever see a glimpse of any of these things. Does that make sense? And so it's very important in the midst of studying it in a sinful world that we remember this. And there's one more warning here tacked on to the end of verse 8 that's very important. He says, in the midst of all these blessings, but, on the contrary, for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable, the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We studied the lake of fire when we were in chapter 20. It's a terrifying place. We talked about, I mean, those were hard lessons to teach. They're hard to, to read. Uh, because not only do we understand we deserve that, but secondly, we know many people that will end up in the eternal wrath of God because of their rejection of the blood of Christ. And that is burdensome for any person. Um, and so, again, there is a warning here. For us who are teaching it and reading it and listening to it, uh, for our friends and family that we pray for all the time, you must remember there are people that will not inherit these things, that will not see the wondrous blessings that we're talking about when we talk about the millennial kingdom or the new heavens and the new earth. And so let's look at this real quick. Before we move on to the new Jerusalem, which is amazing, he says, but for the cowardly, cowardly just means those who are fearful, faint-hearted, despondent, and timid. Um, and it's specifically talking about those who basically don't trust the Lord in faith. It's some of the stuff that Shane was talking about this morning where we, we have his word. We see the evidence. We, you know, it's the people that saw the works of Christ and heard his words but then walked away from him because they just, he didn't give them what they wanted and they, they, they turned away. But it's those who, who, who fall away in times of persecution, fall away in times of testing, fall away in times of hardship, um, uh, those who are, are cowardly. Um, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1, uh, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering with the gospel. He says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a, of power, love, and discipline. So that gives you an understanding of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, I mean, there are people that just have personalities that tend to be more timid, or it's, it's hard to, to, uh, to be courageous, you know what I mean? Uh, it's not about your personality. We're talking about when it comes 
to either clinging to Christ or saving your own skin, you choose save your own skin. And, and he's saying that's not, th- those people will not be there. You cling to Christ even if it means death. You cling to Christ even if it means losing your reputation. You cling to Christ even if it means losing your, your stuff. You cling to Christ. Um, it's not a personality thing. So the cowardly will not be there. He says the unbelieving will not be there. The word unbelieving just means it's, they're, they're unfaithful, untrustworthy, disloyal. Again, it's, it's very similar to what we talk about with the cowardly. Uh, but basically, they deny Christ uh, in their actions and in their words. Um, in John 3, Jesus says uh, that he who believes in me is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Um, Matthew ten thirty three again, anyone who denies me before men, I will deny them before my Father in heaven. So again, in this life, I mean, we don't, we don't deny Christ when it benefits us and then cling to Christ when it benefits us. We just cling to Christ. And so the cowardly, the unbelieving will not be there. The abominable, uh, it just means detestable, uh, abhorrible. It's just unnatural vices that are part of the, the heathen culture, the fallen world around us. Um, many of the things that the world calls good or noble um, are, are uh, abhorrable to God. So it doesn't matter what the culture thinks or even what we think. What matters is what God says. So when we talk about the, the things of the culture, when we talk about, I mean, just, you, it's easy to see now with all the, uh, the, the, the transgender stuff, homosexuality, all that stuff. That, that is abhorrible to God. God has destroyed cities and nations for, for much less, you know. Um, and, uh, and so it doesn't matter if the world thinks it's okay. Uh, if God says it's not, it's not. Now, again, don't think anything, don't, don't think them worse than you. All of us are detestable. All of us are abhorrable. Our sin is wicked and evil. But don't look at that too and then be like, therefore, it's, it's all the same. It's not all the same. Uh, there is wicked, wicked vices that are unnatural that are, you know, I mean, God says that, you know, when they're sacrificing children to Molech, when they're killing babies, he says, this is stuff that hasn't even entered my mind. It doesn't mean that God could not have foreseen it. It just means it's so evil and beyond evil that God is like, this is, this is, holiness is here, and you're on the far other deep side of hell, you know, when you're, so when we talk about abortion, that's one of the most evil possibilities as human beings, that we would murder innocent children. It doesn't matter if the world thinks that's okay. It is, it is satanic and sinister and horrible, but so is homosexuality. So is transgenderism. So is many of the things that we embrace as a culture. So, you know, again, I mean, just let the Lord. So the point being is none of that will be there. Um, Yes, our sin is evil as well. uh, But the licentious practices, most of these things are biblically associated with idolatry, which makes sense today, too, because it's associated with just that, that deep embedded love of the world that's in people. And you just go with the culture, and we just go deeper and deeper and deeper away from the things of God. Yeah. Well, again, I, so, so everything that is not with God is against God, and, and all that are not born again will not be there. You know? So this is just a description of the negative, you know what I mean? But he's basically just saying, I mean, you can sum all this up by saying there's no sinner there. 
There's no one there that has not been born again, transformed, glorified, sanctified together with Christ. That's, that's the bottom line. So yes, if they're not born again, if they're not his, if they're false teachers, then there's no false teachers in the new heavens and new earth. Um, you know, so that, that's the easy way to say all this. But I just thought I'd go through some of these because it reminds us of, of the heinousness of sin. Um, so again, like, like I said, lying and homosexuality, neither will be there. <laughs> they're all sin, and, and there is no sin there. But it's good to look at what, what do these words mean, and, and, and reminds us, don't, it really it ought to tell us, get, get away from the world and, 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 and submit your life to Christ, because you're crazy if you look at this list and you don't think that you're part of this, or at least you used to be, and you're still fighting these things that are indwelt in all of us to begin with. Does that make sense? We're all sinners. We're all enemies of God. We're all abhorrable, if you want to say that. And even as born-again Christians, we're fighting the flesh to the day we die. But we're fighting. That's the point. We're fighting, and we belong to him, not to this world. And so when you see those things in you, or you see, man, I am being swayed by the culture, or I don't think this way. It's like, get out. You know, Stay close to Christ and, and flee this world. But again, it's just a reminder so let me, let me fly through them. Murderers, again, and read the, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, too. Behind all of the, the action is the heart of the action. So it's not just, oh, I haven't murdered someone. There's one thing I haven't done on that list. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I mean, even the Lord says when we're angry at our brother or our sister, it's the same mind. It's the same heart. You might just be uh, more, more timid or, or cowardly, and that's the only reason you've not acted on your anger. You know what I mean? But, but don't think that that this wasn't us at one point, even if we're born again. Immoral persons, again, these are just, it just means fornicators, anyone sexually immoral. This is all sexual immorality. Everything, pornography, masturbation, uh, sex outside of marriage, uh, sex with women, you know, that don't, that aren't your wife. I mean, just every, any kind of immorality, all of it. So again, it's just the whole thing. Sorcery, uh, again, this is the one you're like, well, I mean, I don't know any sorcerers, you know. But, but the, the, the word behind it is, understand this, this is good. The, the word behind this, the, what this, this word is, uh, uh, pharmakos in the Greek, it's the word that we get um, uh, the word pharmacy from, things like that. And most of the time, many commentators believe this is basically uh, things that come through the, the influence of drugs and things like that, uh, especially associated with idolatry. Um, a lot of pagan idolatry, especially back in the day and even today, um, is, is associated with drugs or drug-induced things that happen during the worship of idols and the worship of... And again, I mean, it's just embedded in our culture. But I would throw in this idea behind sorcery is the use of drugs to induce fantasies, experiences, anything associated with idolatry like that. Again, drugs aren't, uh, you know, this thing not mentioned in the Bible, so God doesn't, I mean, have a say in it. I mean, drugs, when you're under the influence of something like that, and it is, I think about this, I always talk to my, my college kids about, you know, marijuana or, or even drinking alcohol. And it's like when you come under the influence of something else, you're, you're not at that moment being, you know, striving to renew your mind with the, the things of God. You're not striving for holiness in those moments. You're not striving for the love of others in those moments. You're being both influenced and controlled by a substance, you know. And so, again, I just think it's one of those things where that is so common and normal in our culture. In fact, we uh, take all kinds of drugs to cause us to feel certain ways and think certain ways. And many of them are legal, too, you know. So it's not even just illegal drugs. But I would just say drug use in general it's just like you gotta you gotta pull away from 
from this stuff. Idolaters, again, uh, just the, the, the worship of anything other than God. And then finally, all liars, um, all those who are deceitful, all those who are hypocrites. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, again, it's just a warning there. Minus Christ, this is your eternal judgment. Together with Christ, you inherit a reward that none of us deserve. All of us deserve what we just talked about. All of us deserve to be in the lake of fire. God, by his grace and mercy and love and patience, not only sent his son and endures evil, but, but draws us out of the darkness into light, uh, continually sanctifies us over our life, and brings us together with him forever, and blesses us with something we don't deserve. And that is the love of God and the grace of God. So again, this isn't me standing up here thinking I'm better than someone, talking down on sinners. I'm, I am one, but I've come out of that, and I belong to Christ, and that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with his love. Yeah. God was just going to say, you know, murderers, Jesus said if you hate your brother. Well, that's what I was saying. Behind all of this is the heart of it. So it's all of us. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, it doesn't matter if you've done any action. I mean, just, just the idea of thinking about uh, same thing with, with the idolaters or liars. I mean, you know, it's, 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 no one is outside this list. And even as a Christian, we fight these things on a daily basis. Even if it's not being manifest in our life physically, we are fighting things in our hearts and our minds all the time. And, and, and that should always humble us to say, I deserve this. Only by the grace of God can I stand here. Only by the grace of God are we even alive at this point. And by the grace of God, he sent his son to die for us and then gives us eternal reward that we're actually talking about that, that not only just blows our mind and we go, what is that going to be like? But we should always go, Lord, thank you. This is only what Christ deserves. And you're bringing us into it because of your patience, love, mercy, and grace. Does that make sense? This ought to be humbling for us, but it also ought to bring joy if you belong to Christ. So keep fighting your sin. Rid yourself of hypocrisy and deceit or any of these things and praise God. Because it's not you ridding yourself of it that's going to earn you some merit with God and get you into the eternal kingdom. It's, it's Christ and Christ alone. Remember, those who overcome are those who believe that Jesus is a Christ. Those who thirst and hunger for him are those who have been born of him. It has nothing to do with your, your, your works and nothing to do with your performance, everything to do with Christ. But if we do belong to him, if we've been born again, if we do believe, then works will follow. Does that make sense? There won't be patterns of this in our life. There can't be because the spirit of God's working within us and we're submitting to his truth and obeying him. Then, then there will be a change of character and a change of person. There'll be both outward manifestations of that and there'll be an inner change that you yourself will know that I am not the same person today as I was before I came to him. So, yeah, yeah, we, we should witness to everybody. Because we don't know who is and isn't. I mean, there's, there's people in this church that you're like, man, they're the godliest person. They're hypocrites, you know what I mean? And there's people in this church that we like, oh, well, there's something funny there. And they are born of Christ and know him, you know what I mean? So our judgment, all we can do is look at fruit and then make an assessment and I'd say many times our assessment isn't, isn't right, you know? It doesn't mean that we're undis- we have no discernment. It doesn't mean that we, we can't discern truth or we can't discern fruit. It just means we are not the judge. <laughs> we are not the ultimate judge. And, uh, you know, I, the, the way that people say it all the time, there's, they say, you know, when we get to heaven, there's going to be people there that you didn't expect to see, and there's going to be people missing that you expected to see there, sort of. And that's basically just a way of articulating Jesus Christ is the final judge. 
Those who are born of him, they will all be there. And those who are not, will not. And so make sure that you are born of him. And then tell others about him. Because he is the only way, truth, and life. And we need Christ. So, uh, one last warning. Oh, and then it just reminded me of these things in Galatians and, uh, and in 1 Corinthians. This says... Uh, you know, we always talk about the fruit of the Spirit, but these are the deeds of the flesh. They're evident. It goes through a whole list of things that we're not going to go through, but, but, but very similar sins that we just talked about. But he says at the very end, uh, of which I forewarn you, just as I've already warned you, so I've, we've already talked about this before, that those who practice these things will not enter the kingdom of God. And again, always remember that. All of us have done these things. All of us will be fighting these things. It's those who practice these things. And, and I've talked to my kids about this. Practice means you're doing it habitually and continually, and you're getting better at it, right? A well-practiced sinner looks like a saint. Do you understand that? A very, very, very... The best sinners are the ones that none of us suspect, uh, which is terrifying. Make sure you're not that. Uh, but, like, but the... But, the, the person that, that is practicing it understands they're practicing it. But again, but they also deceive themselves. But um, don't practice sin. We fight sin. I probably said this in here, and again, I say it to my kids all the time. I used to say it to the youth all the time. Uh, unbelievers deny their sin. They don't agree with God. They don't think sin is sin. They, don't think, the thing, they think what they do is good. Um, and so unbelievers deny their sin. Um, uh, hypocrites hide their sin. They acknowledge it, but they, they try to look good. You know what I mean? So unbelievers deny their sin. Hypocrites hide their sin. Christians fight their sin. We acknowledge it. We know it's there. We're fighting against it. That's what we do. We battle sin. Um, again, in the strength of the Lord, not in our flesh. But just remember that. Um, and First Corinthians, same thing. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the things we're talking about. Do not be deceived. And then there's another list. Same stuff. I mean... It's nothing new under the sun. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Talking about those who practice these things, those who are characterized by these things, those who, this is who they are. And he says, and this is a good reminder, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Again, it doesn't say some of you were too, but you cleaned your lives up. You got straight. You went to church. You're good. You know, it doesn't say that. It says you were washed by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified by him. Again, this has everything to do with him. Uh, and, and you've been filled with the spirit of God. So that salvation. So MacArthur says it this way, commentating on this, this verse. He says, the new heaven and the new earth await believers. And the final hell awaits un- resurrected unbelievers. For believers, it will be a universe of eternal happiness as they dwell forever in the glorious presence of God. From, uh, um, oh, for unbelievers, it will be a terrifying place of unbearable torment and unrelieved misery away from the presence of God. The choices men and women make in this life determine of which, uh, which of those realms they will live forever. And so again, like I said, I, I want to get back to talking about the New Jerusalem. I want to get back to talking about the eternal kingdom. This is wonderful stuff, but... When there's a warning in Scripture, you know, we need, to, we need to all be warned. And there's a warning right in the middle of this beautiful, wonderful future that awaits his children. And so that's the warning. So we're moving on to verse 9, and we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem. So we're going to be here for at least two weeks, if not three, because this is some good stuff. And we're at the end of Revelation, so we're almost there. 
Today we're going to start, uh, this is Revelation 21, verse 9, all the way through, actually, 22, verse 5. Um, that was just the, the chapter 21. But we just talked about the city that descends from heaven. It sits on earth. It's the, it's the, the new Jerusalem. And now the Lord has actually given us, a, again, a little glimpse, but has given us some detail about this city, the new Jerusalem, that comes down uh, that, that we will be a part of, that Christ is now uh, preparing for us, uh, the stuff we talked about last week. And this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And like I said, this is just, when we read this, we just think, this is home. This is home. We're about to describe home. You know, how we sang earlier, we're almost home. It's just keep pressing forward, keep fighting your sin, keep calling uh, our, our people here on earth out of the darkness into the light of Christ. Keep pressing on towards home. This is what we long for. This is what our class is called. We're the sojourners, right? I mean, that's, this, we are sojourners here on earth. We're pilgrims. We're just traveling here. This is not our residence. We're going to talk about our home. Um, and this is good stuff. We've said this before. Um, you know, especially in this church and in this class, we hold one hermeneutical principle through all of Scripture. We strive to, to hang on to that. And basically, it's the, the uh, historical grammatical hermeneutic, which basically just means whatever it says is what it means. We look at it in a literal way. Uh, we read poetry like poetry. We read prophecy like prophecy. But it can't just mean anything. And um, here, you've got to hang on to that principle. Because what people do is they get to these chapters about the kingdom, millennial kingdom, the Old Testament uh, uh, prophecies about the kingdom, and then stuff about the eternal kingdom. And then just like, oh, well, this represents this, and this means this, but we don't do that. We just read it, and what it says is what it means. When it goes beyond our understanding, it's just beyond our understanding. That's it. You don't have to bring it back down to something that you think you can comprehend and make it into something that you can tangibly see. Because you've got to remember, the things we're talking about from this point forward exist in a world that is completely apart from sin. Exist in a world where God himself dwells on earth with man. They exist in a world where heavenly things have become, the heavens and the earth have married in some sense, or heaven and the earth, and, and it's just not comprehensible to you outside of what he says. What he says is, and it was given to us, and then you just got to go, man, whatever that looks like is going to be unbelievable. So there's a lot of that over the next couple of weeks. Um, this was a good quote, I thought, by Henry Morris. Oh, that reminds me. I put some books back on the table. Uh, I know we got a smaller crowd this week. But the reason I did that, I did that when I first started in here. Because I just wanted you guys to see some of the things that I've been reading, some things that I looked at that I thought were very helpful. Because if you're like, I want to know more about this stuff, well, those are good resources. And again, I was saying this to someone earlier. You know, you can't just go, you know, Amazon, Revelation Commentary. You will get... A thousand things. You'll get, you'll get stuff all over the map. You'll get commentaries from people that don't even believe this is the word of God, but they have a commentary written on it. You know? So you can't just Google what's heaven going to be like. Uh, you'll get very imaginative, crazy things. So there's some very good, I feel like, tested resources back there that if you have a desire to, to know more. But one of them is a commentary by Henry Morris called The Revelation Record. It is written by a, a um, creation scientist who... Uh, I just love the way he writes because he, he believes in the inerrancy of the word. He believes in a literal interpretation of scripture, but he comes at it with just a scientific mind. Some of it's kind of nerdy, but some of it's like really good. Uh, but he, he writes in a way that I think is neat. So he's, here's what he says about the New Jerusalem. He says, The New Jerusalem is composed of such beautiful materials, such unique construction, such amazing dimensions as to be almost beyond human comprehension. It would all be impossible to believe 
except that its builder and maker is God, and he has carefully had it recorded in his word. We've talked about that, right? So, so the Lord, whatever he says here, 100% true. Uh, and unbelievable. The city is so huge, its wall so majestic, its gate so magnificent, uh, it has to transcend all imagination. And God must even have a mighty angel carefully measure and delineate it for uh, for John's benefit and for ours. I had so many spelling errors in here. (laughs) That's Brian, not Henry Morris. (laughs) Even so, with all this detailed measurement and description, Most commentators still refuse to believe that the account means what it says. Again, because they just feel like it's just, you know, they got to make it mean something else. Um, He says, seeking by many and varied uh, stratagems of interpretation to make it an allegory or a parable of some kind. All such devices flounder, of course, upon these very details of measurement and description. His point there, we talked about, Robert Thomas said the same thing earlier when we're talking about like a thousand years and all this stuff. It's that the Lord is... The Lord gives us measurements like time markers and, and here like physical measuring because he wants you to see how grand and glorious it is. He doesn't want you to look at all that and be like, oh, it can mean anything. You know, he's like, it, it, he's trying to show you there's precision here. There's precision in the time markers. There's precision in the measurements and the shapes and all that. There's a reason he revealed it. Is it, is it incomprehensible? Yes. When we talk about the size of the city, you're going to be like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for us here now, according to the things that we understand here now, it will make total sense. And, and it, do, it does make total sense, and it will make total sense when we see it with our own eyes. And you just got to read his word and go, that's going to be cool, you know? So uh, I thought that was a good way to say it. So let's look at a description of this place, the New Jerusalem. We're just going to do this piece by piece because there's just so much here. And, and some of this will go faster than others because some of you just got to go, I, you know, that's just going to be there. Uh, but he says in verse 9 and 10, uh, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Um, so the first thing we see here uh, is uh, a description of this new Jerusalem. And the first line is, is good to pay attention to because he says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. It's almost the exact same words as we saw in Revelation 17, 1. Uh, 17 and 18 in Revelation were a description of uh, Babylon, the, the final city, the culmination of the world system that came to fight against the people of God and God wiped them out of Armageddon. And, one of the, and it was one of those angels that revealed it to John. And so it says, so basically look at the, the similarities between the two lines and it shows you. Earlier, we saw the harlot who sits on many waters. Now we're going to see the bride, the wife of the lamb. The world system is gone. The old kingdom is gone. All the sinners are gone. The thing that used to be the god of this world is gone. The, the, the ruler of this world, Satan, is gone. And now the, the, the Lord has made way for the bride. And the bride is perfectly sanctified, perfectly glorified. Um, but this angel comes to show John the bride of the lamb. And there's an intended parallelism here uh, because I think they, the, the Lord wants us to see the comparison. This is the world. This is the people of God. This is the end of the world system. And here's the beginning of eternal life for those who belong to God. Um, and it reminds us of many things that we've heard in Scripture. 
uh, how Jesus says in Matthew, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve God or you'll serve wealth, right? Uh, how he says in John 12, that anyone who loses his life uh, will gain it. And anyone who um, hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And he who loves his life loses it. Uh, in, John, in Luke 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, who after escaping turned back because she, she longed for her home and, and she uh, was destroyed. And he says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I think this is a good reminder of that. Anyone who desires to make their home here on earth, anyone who lives for the things of this world, anyone who, who uh, anything outside of Christ, the end of it is eternal destruction. Remember the harlot that sits on many waters. But those who belong to him, even if you die in this life, even if you suffer in this life, even if you go through persecution in this life, even if you go through hardship in this life, you are part of the, you will be part of the, the eternal blessings of God. You are the bride of Christ, the church. And this is what he does for his bride. And First uh, John 2 was another one. Do not love the world or the things in this world. Everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the, uh, um, is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away. The one who does the will of God lives forever. I think that's what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is the world has passed away. The world is gone. All those who belong to the world are gone. Everything that the world holds dear is gone. It will all be gone. But those who love God will live forever. And so it says, he carried me away. Um, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now, again, I'm not going to go into super detail on this because we talked about it last week. Almost word for word uh, what verse 2 does, Revelation 21, 2, where it talks about the new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God. So we just talked about that. So this is a little review for this part. But basically, and, and this was kind of fun. I, was, I always, sometimes I forget to, to try to find uh, pictures or charts or things like that. But this week, I did. I started like reading through different things, found some other people that had done the work, so I didn't have to recreate anything. But I love this art at the very beginning. Again, we're talking about unbelievable things, but as we start talking about the New Jerusalem, that was the best picture I found. It's just, and again, it's going to be so much better than this. Like, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, a city of translucent, transparent gold and jasper that gleams with the glory of God and radiates so bright that it's brighter than a thousand suns that, you know, illuminates all of creation by the glory. I mean, it's just, and there's a, there's a little drawing. You know, I, I just imagine when we see it, it'll be like one of those, like, it'll be like my, you know, like when a little, little kid draws like a picture of you and them and you're like, oh, that's cute. You know, but, you know, it's just like a little stick figure. This is stick figure compared to... You know what it's going to be, but here's another one that I thought was good, so I just threw it back there. But I thought in the in the midst of talking about the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance being like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal and clear jasper. It's just it, it's heaven. It's it's heaven that that descends and, and sits on earth in a sense. You know, it's 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 the 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 dwelling place of God will come and it will be here together with us, and that's what he's talking about here. Um, but again. Uh, holiness is the key characteristic of the city. We talked about that last week. All the citizens and everything about it is holy, perfect, pure, set apart for God. It's coming down, uh, descending out of heaven. That's the origin of the city. The city is in heaven. It's a tangible place, but it exists in what we call heaven. And it comes down and it descends. It comes from God. He's the designer, architect, builder, creator, originator of this city. This is his city. 
And so that's what those words mean. And then it says here, or in the made ready by God. We talked about that last week. It means prepared by God. And we talked about um, how uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, for all the sheep that, are, that, that belong to him, he says, there's a kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This is it. Uh, in John 14, 2 and 3, where he says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place, I will come back again, receive you to myself. This is it. This is what he prepares or has been preparing. In Hebrews 11, when it talks about Abraham and then the saints of old, who were longing for something more than what they were promised here on earth, a city, it says, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, a heavenly country, a city prepared for the saints of God. This is it. Does that make sense? That it, it's not just a mystical, heavenly, you know, something or another that, you know, is, myst- is, is, is just like uh, not real. It's a, it's a tangible place. God is in a tangible place. Christ is in a tangible place. That place will come and it will descend and it will be here on earth. This is the new Jerusalem. Um, And it says here, the difference here, it says, um, having the glory of God, the the holiness of God. uh, And and it will basically, this city will display the eternal glory of God forever. Uh, it will be a full manifestation of all the attributes, the character of God, the glory of God. We will come and we will glorify him as we see him in his glory. It will resonate with his glory. Again, some of these things, I just I don't know how to say it outside of just, it will be radiant and brilliant and glorious and majestic, and it will be the glory. It will be the presence of the glory of God. It will be a manifestation of the glory of God. It will be God. God will dwell with man, and we will be in his glory and see his glory. It is incomprehensible. But all the people from all the ages, from beginning to end, that have been made perfect and holy and complete, that will, will receive his glory and be a part of his glory, and we will be there together with him. But again, because it's incomprehensible, we think of it just being like spiritual. You know what I mean? But it's, it's physical. It's, a, it's an actual place. Um, and uh, MacArthur talking about all this says, human language is inadequate to fully describe the unimaginable magnificence of believers' indescribable eternal home. You know, he's just using big words there to say, it's just beyond description. Unwilling to take the language of Scripture at face value, many seek for some hidden meaning behind this description, behind John's description. But if the words do not mean what they say, then who has the authority to say what they do not, or what they do mean, right? I mean, if they don't mean what God conveyed, are we going to make up what they mean? I mean, this is, this, we have to trust him in what he says. Abandoning the literal meaning of the text leads only to baseless, groundless, futile speculation. The truth about the heavenly city is more than is described. Absolutely. No one's doubting that. It is way greater than what we're going to say here. But, he says, but not less and not different from what is described. Does that make sense? So, is it greater? Yes. Is it different? No. Is it more magnificent than I'm going to explain it to you? Absolutely. Goodness gracious, yes. But is it less than that? Or is it something that we can pull into our worldview or our mindset and make it mean something? No. Don't do that. Just let it be huge. But, let it, but understand what it means. It is a material creation, yet so unique as to be unimaginable to us. The words of John, the, uh, of John provide all the detail we have been given by God to excite our hope. And it should. It should excite your hope. It should make you go, yes, I want to be there. It should make you go, I want to throw everything out and follow him with all my heart and life, you know? 
Um, but it's also just going to be unimaginable, and that's okay. So, <laughs> that's right, Craig. <laughs> All right, the glory of the new Jerusalem. Craig's getting excited up here. <laughs> the glory of the new Jerusalem. I thought it was mine at first. <laughs> I was like, of course it would be. Uh, look at these next verses. So it's, the, the city's coming down out of heaven. And it says, her brilliance, speaking of the new Jerusalem, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and the names were written on them, uh, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, There were also three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All right, there's some great stuff here. First thing, it talks about the brilliance of this city. When it says her brilliance was like a very costly stone, again, just throwing this up there so we have a visual. But it's talking about the radiance, the splendor. Uh, it's the same word used to describe uh, stars and the sun and luminary, you know, the bright. It's just basically, it's just a word to try to talk about how bright and radiant and brilliant this city is because it's resonating the glory of God. And he says, he describes it like a very precious stone. Again, I just think of John. You know, God's giving John the words. God, John, but John's describing something that's indescribable. And he's just taking, he's just, I mean, every, every word of precious stones and, and the words of star, sun, just glorious, bright. You can see him just probably stretching uh, his, his, his mind to, to try to grasp in word form what to say here, but he, he says the, stone, the, the city was like a very precious stone, like crystal clear jasper. Now again, if you know anything about jasper, I looked up a bunch of pictures of jasper, different kinds of jasper. There's no crystal clear jasper like this. Some people uh, have translated this diamond. You know, that's like kind of a stone that we look at. It's the word for jasper, but it's just, it's just talking about translucent, transparent cl- clearness. And you're going to see this talk about the, the, the streets. You're going to see this talking about the river. You, I mean, there's just a purity a purity that's incomprehensible to us. We don't have translucent gold or translucent jasper here right now. We don't have water that says pure and, and clear and crystal clear is, is what John describes a river of life being. But the idea is an absolute, perfect, and pure uh, mineral. Uh, of, of, and he describes it being like jasper. Um, and, uh, and you see this same kind of idea described uh, earlier. We saw in Revelation, well, you're going to see it in Revelation 21, 18, talking about the walls being made of jasper, the city being made of pure gold, like clear glass, again, just beyond comprehension. Revelation 21, 19 talks about the foundation stones of the city wall adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone is jasper. So this, I, this jasper stone or this jasper look is, is something that's described uh, earlier in Revelation, later in Revelation, but describes the throne room of God, describes God himself. Uh, in Revelation 2 or 4, 2 through 3, talking about the throne of God, when John first sees God on his throne, um, he says there was a throne standing in heaven, one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. So even God himself is radiating uh, in his glory, and John's like, it's like a, a jasper stone. Uh, Ezekiel twenty eight thirteen actually, which is crazy, because this is, this is the Lord talking about uh, he's talking about the king of Tyre, but he's, he's talking about Satan, ultimately. And talking about Satan being in the Garden of Eden. But 
He describes the Garden of Eden or this place where Satan was and where Satan was dwelling before he fell. And he talks about every precious stone we are covering, ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and the jasper. Um, And so, again, we see consistent in Scripture when you see the throne of God or the dwelling place of God or God himself, you see this, it's like he's like a jasper stone. Uh, And here, John describes it being like a, a translucent or a crystal clear jasper. Um, And so, and then uh, it says he was like a very costly stone, crystal clear jasper. This is just a description of God and his glory. And and the glory of God is illuminating and radiating from this city. Um, Revelation 21, verse 23 and 22, 5 talk about uh, the glory of God illumined this city and its lamp is the Lamb. It says in Revelation 22, 5, there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of a light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. So again, it's just, just think of this brilliant radiance that is coming from this new Jerusalem as it comes down and he describes it like a crystal clear Jasper uh, city. Um, and then he starts talking about the gates. It says, it says that um, it, it had a great high wall, 12 gates. There's 12 angels at the gates and the 12 gates had names on them that were the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So talking about our gates, we see those three things mentioned about the gates. First thing, you know, the gates are not to keep enemies out or anything like that. The angels aren't there necessarily to protect from, uh, from anything happening bad to the city because, again, there's no sin anymore. Angels are ministering spirits. They're messengers and helpers of God. They'll probably be there to minister, to help, to serve, and to, you know, to... They're there for the children of God and for God. I mean, they're, they're his spirits that guard these gates for whatever reason. Um, and then it's, it's neat that the, the gates have their names on them, and it's the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, three gates on the east, north, south, and west. Um, it's very similar to the millennial city of Jerusalem. If you read about the millennial uh, 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 kingdom and you read about the, the, the gates of the city. Actually, I wrote it down. Ezekiel 48 talks about it. In Ezekiel 48, this is the thousand-year kingdom. This is a different city. It's a different place. It is Jerusalem, but it's not the Jerusalem we're talking about here. They're very unique and different, and we're going to find that out in a second, but it's, it's a type. It's a precursor. It definitely shows us something about the eternal kingdom, uh, just like the temple was designed that way or the tabernacle was designed that way. They're a shadow of things to come, a reflection of the whole, but not the whole itself. Ezekiel 48 says uh, on the, the Jerusalem that will exist during Christ's day where Christ reigns as king for the thousand years, uh, you got the, the different gates, and they all have names, and it even says which, which names are on the, the gates. Um, and so there's the three gates on the north, east, south, and west. I'm not going through all of them, but it shows it's going to be Reuben here, Judah here, Levi here, Joseph here, Benjamin here. Uh, and then it gives a, 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 the, the size of the, the city. The city here is going to be 18,000 cubits around. This city is way bigger. We're going to find that out in a second. So it's obviously two different places, but you see how this is very similar. It's a type or a shadow of the eternal city to come. So... All that being said, the, the city gates are named for the 12 tribes of the son, sons of Israel, uh, which also shows that Israel means something. Israel and the church aren't the same thing. Israel and the church won't be the same thing for eternity. Isn't that crazy? Even though we will be one in unity and there'll be one, one group, one family of God, there's still distinction. Because the, the names of the 12 apostles and the names of Israel are, are, are there. And so there's still, still an identity 
of Israel forever. And, and that's, that's special. God, God chose Israel, and that was his doing. Um, but like I said, many of the attributes of the millennial kingdom are reflected in the eternal kingdom. Um, and the eternal kingdom highlights the beginning of sinless creation where God rules and reigns um, uh, forever. And we'll talk more about that, sec- than that in a second. But there are different sizes to the different city. Um, millennium Jerusalem is 18,000 cubits. A cubit's about a foot and a half. So it's basically uh, 270,000 uh, uh, feet around, which is about 51.14 square miles. So that's how big the millennial city of Jerusalem will be. Uh, we're going to find out soon that heavenly Jerusalem is uh, 1,500 uh, miles around and up and is much, much larger. So these are talking about different things. Um, next, we got the foundation stones. It talks about the foundation stones here. So you got this great high wall, and then it has a foundation um, and it says the foundation stones have 12 names, the names of the 12 apostles. So these stones provide, looks like the bedrock for the, the wall of the city. And when you see how high the wall is, it's going to take some very sturdy, big bedrock. Because <laughs> it's incomprehensible. Um, Hebrews 11 talks about, we've already said this, uh, Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and architect are God. This is it. This is a city who had foundations laid by God himself, who is the builder and architect of the city. Only God can do the things that we're talking about. No person could ever build a city like this. Um, and so uh, this, this city we're talking about is distinct and, and different. Um, and like I said, you see uh, the distinction between Israel and the church. Again, we're not talking about two separate people groups. We're talking about two uh, groups, Israel and the church, whom God has chosen and brought together as one uh, but Israel's Israel, and the church is the church. And there's still a, 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 an understanding that those are distinct things for, for eternity. And at the same time, we're one with God. We're unified together with him. Um, so the words, uh, Robert Thomas says this. I didn't put it in my little slides. But he says, the words clearly show that God has an eschatological role both for both people groups. Beyond dispute, the description of the bride city separates believers among Israel from believers of the church and in a symbolic way assigns the two groups separate roles in the new creation. So, again, what that means, I don't know. Beyond, there's, there's, there's a distinction. Uh, but there is a unity as well. I mean, think about this. you got no problem saying there's a distinction with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's a unity, right? And so how, why, why couldn't God still have distinction amongst his people and at the same time us all still be one person, one together with God, unified together with him. And, and we are like, but you just leave the, I don't know, you know, but, but he's got Israel and he's got the church there. All right. So, uh, the next part is this, and I think we'll end on this today. The measurements of the new Jerusalem. This part's fun. All right. So he didn't have to do this, but he sends an angel to give us measurements of this city just so it blows your mind. And, and here's what he says. It says, uh, the one who spoke to me had gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, its wall. He laid it, it's laid out as a square, its length as great as its width, uh, and he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are all equal, all right? So a big square. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, probably thick. It wouldn't make sense to have a 72-yard high wall, I don't think. But, you know, it, doesn't make, it, it looks like the... the, the The height here is equal to the width and length, which is 1,500 miles. And he says this, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. All right. (laughs) So 
it, uh, the measurements of the city. Uh, the measurements of the city, basically, uh, he takes, uh, this angel takes a gold measuring rod to measure the city. This is very similar to what uh, happened in the Millennial Temple and in the, uh, uh, the Tribulation Temple. Uh, the Millennial Temple was measured by a measuring rod in Ezekiel 40. Um, and uh, an, an angel, or it, maybe it's Christ, measures the, the temple of the millennium there in Ezekiel and gives us an indicator of how big the temple is. In Revelation 11, God tells John to take a measuring rod like a staff and measure the temple that will be um, in the tribulation, during the tribulation time, and John measures that temple. So this is something that has happened before, and we see the Lord measuring things out so we understand what they will be. But here he measures the city. The first thing it says is it's laid out as a square. Its length, width, and height are all equal. The word that they use here, uh, it's, it's uh, tetra, 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 tetragonos. Uh, it's a word that depicts a cube shaped, um, and usually uh, it would talk about building structures like cube blocks and things like that. Um, and it's very similar to the cube shape of the Holy of Holies in the temple and in the tabernacle. Um, but here, this cube is a big cube. It's 1,500 miles. Actually, in the Greek, it says 1,200 stadion, and then the, the, the wall is 144 cubits across. Uh, a stadion. Uh, by the way, is uh, basically a unit of measurement uh, that a lot of people have used. There was um, the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians, but the, the, the Greek and Roman stadion was about 606 feet. A stadion would, would be anywhere from 202 yards to 229 yards, just depending on the, the culture that used it. But it was a common, it's actually the same thing as we call in the English, a, um, what's it called, a furlong? I mean, I know we don't use that word very often, but that's, it's the same, it's basically an eighth of a mile. A stadium is about an eighth of a mile, furlongs an eighth of a mile. It's, off, it's, a, it's a common uh, 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 standard of, of measurement, a unit of measurement. But it says it was 12,000 stadium uh, long, which is about roughly 1,500 miles. So this is an English equivalent. So if it's 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles this way, and 1,500 miles t- tall, thousand square miles of city you know and again i mean it's just a this is this is a large city uh and and the use of the city is just as high as it is wide and and large if you think about this the the largest current structure if you want to call it that that we have on this earth is mount everest which is about 5.5 miles tall so this this dwarfs it and different people have tried to just make you imagine this but if you lay out the the width and the length it would sit somewhere like that. So this is the city. This isn't the new earth. This is the city of God. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the capital uh, where Christ will be. So 1,500 miles this way and that way. Um, if you put it on the earth and try to imagine that, like sitting 1,500 miles high off the earth, this is just, a, again, just an artist. That, that But a, it's, it's huge. Actually, I looked this up. I thought about it. Because I was like, what are the different layers of the atmosphere? And so I started looking them up because I was just thinking, I thought about Mount Everest. And I looked that up because it, it, it gets to the top of the, I'm not good at science, but the, yeah, the troposphere. And so basically, these are the different uh, levels of atmosphere, or layers of atmosphere. And then it gives you the miles over there, the troposphere, one or zero to 10 miles up, stratosphere, mesosphere, all that. So and it shows you things that happen. And so airplanes, hot air balloons, weather, all that. That's all, everything in our, you know, around us. That's in the, just this first 10 miles. And then beyond that, you get to the ozone, meteors up here, satellites are in the thermosphere. Well, this city, God says, 
sits 1,500 miles high, which means it's up into the exosphere. I mean, th- th- we're talking about outer space. Now, again, your human capacity, understanding things of this world goes, that's impossible. Yes. But, but the, the, the glory of God radiating out, radiating out of the city illumines the universe. I mean, it says that the, the sun of the moon, and the, 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 the light of the moon and the sun are, are unneeded, you know? Uh, it doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that the glory of the city makes the sun just, it's just like, oh, yeah, I think it's up there somewhere. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just like, anyway, I'm just, but it's just crazy to think. Like I said, it's just, inc- uh, this is just, I just Googled uh, layers of the atmosphere. Uh, these guys, this one came from Verse by Verse Ministries, which is Stephen Armstrong. He has, he has a bunch of slideshows from his sermons. I can't remember where I got this one of these came from, uh, I just Googled, uh, measurements of the New Jerusalem. You get all kinds of silly things, too. So, I mean, you got to, you look at it, you're just going, I mean, you know. But these are the ones that I'm like, okay, what the word says, this is us trying to think. And this actually, I feel like, makes sense with a, a literal understanding of the words. Does that make sense? So, you just go Google it. Go Google layers of the atmosphere or artist rendition of the New Jerusalem. You'll get a lot of... A lot of junk, <laughs> but I looked through them, and here's some stuff that I thought helps you kind of think through how, but again, the idea here is it is beyond comprehension, and the wall is 72 yards wide. That's, that's a huge, a thick wall, but it makes sense. Where, so basically 216 feet wide, uh, and then let me end on this. He says, uh, this is by human measurements, which are angelic measurements. So uh, there, there was a, Robert Thomas, it's, it's hard Greek here. It's, it actually says literally um, the measure of a man which is of an angel. So what does that mean? So here, basically, uh, here's a couple of, of, Robert Thomas says the expression means, here's what he said, the expression means that an angel did the measuring but followed human standards in doing so. That's, it's that simple. It's not like angels go, hey, human measurements are great. It's saying the angel <laughs> measured it out. An angel measured it out and it's communicating to us through human language and, and he's saying, basically, they're the same. So don't, don't look at this and try to come up, well, that was angel measurements. It's like, they're, they're the same. That's all it means. He's basically saying, there's spirit common among men, even though non-human did the measuring. So he's just, it's just a measuring. John MacArthur, I feel like, I like this guy because he says it the way I would process it. He said, a yard is a yard, a foot is a foot, a mile is a mile, whether humans or angels measure it out. That's, I was like, I get that, you know? And then Michael Vlock, which has written some of those books about there, says God seems to warn against spiritualizing the passage. That's why probably John had, or God had John put this in there, that, that little line. It, don't spiritualize it. Don't look at this as some sort of angelic measurements, you know, that could be anything. It's no, it'd be a yard's a yard's, a foot's a foot. He said he's emphasizing that the city is measured according to human measurements. It's going to be 1,500 miles long, wide, and tall. Just that simple. And so don't, don't try to read into it because an angel measured it. And it's like, oh, no, it just, it's just going to be huge. All right, let me pray for us.